Welcome, friends, to Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast, where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. I am your host, Curtis Kopotic, and I am joined by my co-host, Amber Brown. And today we are going to continue our interview with Frank Alvarez. If you missed the first one, be sure to listen back to that one. But today we are going to be talking with him more on the legal specifics of pre-employment testing. kind of been talking a little bit and skirting around the edges of these tests. We don't need to go into the specifics of how to make a test, but what are some errors that you see that companies need to watch for after they've created a valid test? What I would say is the most significant errors that I see is that people will first just think about that this can be implemented in a pass-fail way. For the reasons I kind of alluded, yeah, everybody understandably wants something quick and easy. But if the test identifies, reveals that somebody's inability to meet those PDAs, the physical demands analysis that you alluded to, is because of a physical or mental limitation, usually a physical limitation in this context, that may be a disability, that triggers a reasonable accommodation analysis under the law. And in some locations around the country, California, for example, engaging in the interactive process is a mandatory requirement of their state disability discrimination law, and some people would argue Ninth Circuit law as well under the ADA. But in other jurisdictions, it's a means to an end of evaluating whether somebody was discriminated against by being failed to provide a reasonable accommodation. But the key is, is that, you know, once you're on notice, either because you're doing the test as an employer or you're using a partner to do the test, who's essentially your agent, that the person is not able to meet those requirements, there's an argument that you should be at least considering whether there's reasonable accommodations that would allow the person to still perform those jobs. And the process is equally if not more important sometimes than the result you reach because the process that baked into the ADA is the notion that if you do an individualized assessment about that includes an exploration of, of alternative ways to perform jobs, that that will in and of itself lead to better, more lawful decisions about whether somebody is qualified. So that's one thing, a pass-fail type of orientation to this can be problematic. What I look for is for some protocols in place to at least identify those spots where somebody in the course of an exam disclosed or became evident to the testing provider that there was some limitation that was outcome determinative in the test. And the question is, are there some processes or protocols in place to ensure that the test is still defensible because the person is not qualified for the job when you consider not only the essential functions of the position, but the ability to perform reasonable accommodations that don't pose an undue hardship or direct threat. So I think that's one aspect of errors that I see. Two others that come to mind, or and this goes a little bit to the PDA, the physical demands analysis, is that at least the EEOC's orientation to this, and I think many courts as well, is that the physical demands, the ability to lift, the ability to stand, squat, crawl, walk, are not in and of themselves the essential function. Those are the activities that are involved traditionally in performing essential functions. So you need to connect in a PDA, a physical demands analysis, the 
physical demands and activities to essential job functions. And that sets the table. And the reason why this exists is that sets the table to say, okay, somebody with a disability who does not have that physical level of ability, can't meet the traditional physical demands of a job. Is there a different way to do a job? Okay, is there through reasonable accommodation? Is there some different equipment or device that would enable them to do that job? Or is there a different programmatic way of reorienting the job that would overcome that limitation? So that flexibility is important. And when you, you want to be looking at um, job descriptions that are driving this or physical demands analysis with that in mind, that is a piece of the puzzle. Ultimately, you're going to have to defend the decision as being job-related and consistent with business necessity, which means it applies to the essential functions of a job. The last thing that I would share on this is that kind of goes to what I mentioned earlier about implementation. The error I see is that sometimes that companies get a program, and it's a good program, but then it falls down in implementation because that depends upon coordination internally. For example, you can take the whole notion of a post-offer test. You can design it perfectly, but if one of the requirements for a bona fide job offer is that physical ability piece of it is the final stage and there shouldn't be any other contingencies out. So that may be the way the test is designed, but on the floor, you know, the way it's implemented, a company's still doing background checks at the same time that they're doing the physical ability test. So that can endanger an entire program. Or sometimes I see people actually, the test is fully completed when people are already starting to work. And that's a problem too. So there are some operational implementation issues like that become pretty important in defending these types of tests. I think that's the main message is that having a program is completely effective, but realizing that there are clear parts of it. So some of the clear parts are to make sure it is the very last thing accomplished, and that's totally fine to have it then. If anything else comes with it, even at the same time, it's no longer the last, and therefore that's a form of discrimination or can be used or seen as such. So I think that's very important for our listeners to, to understand that. And something that makes a lot of sense. So there are several variants or different types of employee testing or post-offer testing that Fit for Work does and other companies do as well, such as return to work, pre-employment testing. So from a, a legal perspective, how are you categorizing these different types of tests and what are some differences amongst them that you would say would make one more valuable or valid than another? Okay, so I divide the world of this type of physical ability testing into initially two categories, and then for each of the categories, I kind of subdivide them into two more categories. So I think of pre-employment testing, and then testing that is during employment, okay? And with pre-employment, I divide it into pre-offer testing and post-offer testing. So pre-offer testing is almost a little bit misleading in the sense that it's not what I think is normally a full-blown comprehensive post-offer employment test. It's a more limited test that the EEOC would refer to as an agility test or fitness test. It's really kind of, it has no medical measurements involved, so you're not going to be 
evaluating somebody's heart rate. You're not asking questions about prior injuries or any of those things. Um, you're just going to allow them to perform the test and you will see whether they can actually engage in the physical activities that are replicated from the actual job. So think of, you know, most common example is like the uh, test that they give firefighters or police officers that are just really physical agility or fitness tests. And again, the reason is, is because if it's done pre-offer, you can't satisfy the ADA requirements for making disability-related inquiries and conducting medical examinations unless you've given a bona fide conditional offer. So some companies want to kind of do that type of testing to make certain that they educate the applicants sooner rather than later about what this job is all about so it can be valuable for them. And then some of them may or may not even do a post-offer comprehensive test. We will get back to the rest of our interview in a moment, but I want to ask you if you would like to get ahead of injuries versus trying to play catch up with them at your business. Fit for Work can partner with you to prevent injuries before they even happen. With over 750 sites and 20 years of experience, we have helped countless companies of all shapes and sizes do exactly that. We can guide you to systematically lower your company's injuries with four easy steps on-site early intervention, industrial ergonomics, employee testing, and safety compliance. Go to our website, wellworkforce.com, and click on the Connect With Us button to learn more. So pre-employment pre-offer, which essentially has to be an agility test, or pre-employment post-offer, which can be something broader. Under the ADA, it would just be the classic type of test where you, at least on the federal law, the way the ADA is designed, you can almost ask anything you want, including gathering baseline data. There are some states like California that would be problematic with. But on the federal law, you can almost ask anything you want because the presumption is, is that we know we're in this very tight window where this is the last thing that's being examined. And if you withdraw this offer, we're going to scrutinize the reason that you withdrew it, and it's going to have to be job-related and consistent with business necessity. So I think of it in those two categories. And then you move to tests that are given to employees during employment. And by and large, I see two different categories of tests here. Sometimes it gets confusing because I find that many employers refer to them both as fit-for-duty tests. And I think you need to peel that onion a little bit, okay, when you use that phrase, fitness for duty. Sometimes you're doing a fitness for duty test when somebody is returning to work following an injury or a medical leave of absence. And that's important because, you know, it may involve considerations under the Family Medical Leave Act or other state and local leave laws as well uh, as to how you do that. Sometimes you may be doing it when the person is actually at work and they're exhibiting signs that they something's happened to them and they really are not physically fit for this job. And you're going to pull them out of work subject to a fitness for duty evaluation. So different types of scenarios, what they have in common is that the ADA has a standard for making disability-related inquiries and medical examinations of employees. And it's a very broad standard. And it requires that you show that the exam or the inquiry is job-related and consistent with business necessity. So I say it's broad in the sense that there's a very, there's a short sentence, you know, the exam must be or the inquiry must be job-related and consistent with business necessity. 
And then it gets complex after that. Well, what does that mean? And what it really means is that there needs to be individualized evidence to suggest, create a reasonable belief that a person may not be able, may not be qualified to perform one or more essential functions because of an injury or an illness. And therefore, that triggers a legitimate employer interest that's job-related and consistent with business necessity because it relates to an actual ability to perform an essential job function. It's not a generalized health inquiry. I mean, you got to stop and think about why the ADA exists. It exists in part because many companies did not want to hire people who got sick because they had disabilities. They were more likely to get sick or they were more likely to increase health insurance costs. So those things are not job-related and consistent with business necessity. You know, that's discrimination on the basis of disability based upon stereotypical notions about a person with a disability. So what you can do, though, is focus on actual job performance and ability, actual concerns, objective, fact-based concerns about a person's ability to perform essential job functions and then implement on top of that standards of reasonable accommodation and direct threat. So those are the different ways I look at it. Again, with the testing of employees, you just need to be careful when it's a return to work situation because it also triggers things, you know, medical examination rules under the Family Medical Leave Act or other similar state or local leave laws. And in that answer, I think you did a really good job of also highlighting some common ways that employers may misunderstand these different testings as well. Anything along those lines, in addition, that you might want to highlight as far as things that often get misunderstood or or get employers in trouble? Well, I guess there's a couple of things that I would just maybe leave you guys with, which is things I always want employers to be aware of when they do this type of testing. And it goes back to a little bit of what I was talking about at the beginning, which is first, it's kind of a risk management orientation to all this. The law is unfortunately underdeveloped. And so as a result, I like to tell clients that when you're dealing with physically demanding jobs, there's a risk to testing, but there's also a risk to not testing. If you want to keep getting the results you're getting, keep doing what you're doing. And this is, I think, the most sophisticated business people that I deal with realize that the employment risk is but one of many different business risks. And therefore, you need to look at your whole business. And obviously, nobody can condone doing something that is blatantly unlawful. And I just don't run into employers that do that, to tell you the truth. Where there is a lot of discussion is where the lines are about when something, when a practice rubs up against the considerations in a law. This is where the lack of clarity creates a lot of reasonable disagreements. So with that in mind, the mindset is, is okay, I understand there might be risks to doing testing because of the undeveloped nature of the law. But if we're too conservative and we don't do testing, and then we have physically demanding jobs, there may be a risk to not doing the testing as well. People may continue to get hurt. Our business may suffer, okay? If the business suffer, we may need to lay people off. That may trigger other types of employment claims. So that's first and foremost is to 
think to be realistic about the business judgment that you're involved in there and to try to develop a path forward that really makes sense given your business and uh, level of risk tolerance that your company has. And, and that differs from organization to organization. The second thing I would tell people is, listen, don't do this unless you're committed. Okay, you need a well-designed program. You need a program that's implemented or operationalized in a manner that fulfills the vision of the program. So you need both of those pieces. And I alluded to this earlier. You really got to have be working with people who understand the complexities of what I'm talking about and therefore can design the program on the front end with those things in mind and then can help you implement the program in a manner which is consistent with that. And sometimes, especially when you work with vendors, they're not going to be fully responsible for implementing it. They may be largely responsible, but there needs to be this collaboration. There needs to be this mind meld about what is being accomplished. And then there needs to be a constant vigilant effort to ensure that over time, you don't slip away from what the playbook is for implementing this program. And if you're not committed to doing that, I'd walk away because it's going to be a frustrating exercise. And I think you really have to think long and hard about it, or at least be open about the limitations that you're facing in implementing a program like that. And the future cases that are going to be brought are going to be won and lost by companies who have the best stories to tell. And your story is going to be shaped by what you can tell the EOC or a judge or a jury if you get into that problem by you know explaining what you did to put the foundation of the program together, what you did to educate the stakeholders on it, what you did to ensure that the vendor you were working with was aware of these things and abiding by the legal requirements and what you did on a daily basis to make certain it was being implemented in the right way. And I will tell you, in my experience, companies who do that don't find themselves too often in front of the EEOC or in court because the story itself diffuses the risks in a lot of ways. That's fantastic. And a great way to kind of sum it up that the entire idea is that this is a valuable tool that's kind of like the table saw. If you don't know how to use it, don't use it. <laughs> Buy everything pre-cut. But if you can use it effectively and safely, it has wonderful rewards. So making sure that people are compliant, that they do have this option and doing it correctly is going to make all the difference. Frank, thank you so much for your time. I know Amber and I are grateful for providing this clarity and we can't thank you enough for helping us kind of digest and break down this very complex topic. So thank you so much. You're quite welcome. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. When interviewing Frank, he really brought up a great point that when you're able to implement this type of test, there's a risk for testing and there's always a risk for anything. There's a risk for being in business, but there's a greater risk for not testing. And that risk is putting people into positions to which they're not able to do so and finding that opportunity. And it's a really a win for everybody because it allows you to go through those process of those PDAs 
to get that proper test and helping people with their long-term abilities within your company. And as we mentioned at the last episode with Frank, he has partnered up with WorkSteps to make sure that their pre-employment testing is following right along with that letter of the law. So if you all have any questions regarding pre-employment testing in your place of business, please contact WorkSteps and they will be able to help you out. Amber and I want to take this opportunity to thank you as the listener for making this a great first season, something that we've really enjoyed and are looking forward to continuing to bring forth more information and great guests. So we will look forward to the start of season two on the first of the year. And we know without your support, this wouldn't be possible. So thank you for listening to this episode of Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. Please like and subscribe wherever you listen. And to get started preventing injuries, please visit our website at wellworkforce.com or email us with any questions or comments to podcast at wellworkforce.com. And remember, prevention improves lives.